You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Good to begin a new year with you and the Lord on the Lord's Day. Today you see that this sermon is under the heading of Back to Basics, and it is not the John study that we have been engaged in for a good while. Uh, Congregation has decided that on the first Sunday of the month, we're going to have a Back to Basics lesson. Today is the most basic lesson in Christ I can think of. Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. For all the times... It seems like that the combination of these four words appear together in Scripture. When actually looking it up, it didn't happen as often as I thought it might. This combination of four words in a passage only occurs five times in the Scripture. Three of those are in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter 1.11, if we have the Christian virtues, the life of sanctification that Peter extols this to, He said the entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. He also mentions Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in chapter 2. There, their false teachers are denying him. And then famously in 2 Peter 3 and 18, and this might be the most commonly known passage of these four words, uh, is that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter gives us Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, three times altogether. Uh, Paul gives us once in the book of Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jude one time gives us, talking about there, God our Savior through Jesus Christ Christ our Lord. And so all of these words in one place actually happens quite a bit fewer times than I think I suspected, and maybe you you as well. But this is the main concept, I believe, of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord. This On this hangs salvation. Uh, well, he's the Savior. Uh, on this hangs the order of our life. He's the Lord. On this hangs the uh, promises of God. That's what it means that he's the Messiah, the uh, expected one, the anointed one, the special one that God sent above all others. And that person was Jesus. So in Acts 16, uh, we have this, and now we'll go to a longer reading. In Acts 16, we have the case of Paul and Silas being imprisoned. There was a commotion caused in the town there of Philippi where they were because there had been a demon-possessed girl following them around, troubling them, and kept on saying, these men are servants of the Most High God. They teach the way of salvation. Now, one thing that Jesus and the apostles never really uh, cottoned on too much was the testimony of demons. Everything the demons ever said about them was true, uh, but uh, that is not something, uh, that's not an endorsement that they eagerly sought. 
Uh, that is not an endorsement that they would put on their business cards or their letterheads. And so when this girl was troubling them with that, uh, the apostle Paul healed her, which was a great relief, I'm sure, to her, which was a great torment to the demon who got to go back to those nether regions from which he came, but also was a great consternation to the, the, the slave girl's owners because they were making a profit with her ability to uh, do fortune telling. They charged then that Paul and Silas were teaching things contrary uh, to what Romans would, were allowed to observe, that they were troublers uh, of the whole world wherever they went, and they made charges against Paul and Silas uh, in public in the legal court to that effect. The people heard that and were incensed. Verse 22. The crowd rose up together, Acts 16, 22, against them. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer, he'll be important later, to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there came a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the do doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and all your house. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So this is a very important story and we'll note this progression Paul had been arrested for publicly, and it was publicly known that he was a servant of God. He was preaching the way of salvation, that this was a way of life charged to be not lawful for Romans. But then there was a powerful sign of divine approval, the earthquake, which didn't shake the whole house to the ground, but just opened up the doors. And then the prisoner stayed put. And so he came in asking what had been commonly known that this man teaches the way of salvation, what is the way of salvation? What must I do to be saved? The answer was, believe in the Lord Jesus. Paul was then taken to his house to be cared for, to have further conversation about his message. And in that same hour of the night, Paul was both cared for and fed and the man baptized. What we find is, is, uh, this man would have had a number of things that need to be further clarified from believe in the Lord Jesus. Sometimes we just read that as though it's in a vacuum. 
that's fine, I think, as long as we all understand uh, what it was he's asking. He said, what must I do to be saved? Well, I think it probably needs to be clarified for him. Be saved from what? Well, be saved from sin and its punishment. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And so he's going to need to tell him about Jesus. He's going to need to tell him about uh, the Jewish Messiah, what his work was, what some of his teachings were, and the sacrifice he made. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Tell this jailer that this man has now been elevated by God, that he has all authority in heaven and earth. And then what does it mean to believe in him? What does trust and faith, a relationship with Jesus to be his disciple, what does that mean? Now, I do think the Apostle Paul was able to cover all that territory and probably some more in a relatively succinct amount of time because the man appears to be baptized within the hour, right? And I'm hoping that within the hour we can cover this same ground. The Apostle Paul could and we'll do our best and we don't even have to uh, tend to my wounds or give me a lunch. And so hopefully we can take take the same thing. So first we have Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. This is where we start the gospel. Uh, for many people, if we've not raised with a knowledge of the scriptures from creation and through the Jewish developments, basically if we're not Jews, this is for us where the gospel story starts. We start our reading of the scripture normally. And for all of you who are about to have a reading plan, uh, here's a verse that you're probably going to read today. Because what's on the January 1st reading plan? Matthew 1, right? This is where we start. This is the beginning. It's a good place to start. Matthew 1 and verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And so there we have this very ancient story. But in Jesus, it's very relevant story and it's personal story and it's both history of the nation and history of the man. After the genealogy, we then have the more proximate part of the story, starting with his mother and the man who was an earthly father to him. Verse 18 of Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one of God. This is why people who don't have a uh, better acquaintance with the Bible, sometimes think of Jesus Christ as his formal name, right? They think Jesus is his first name. They think Christ is his last name, his middle initial. Of course, H, but I'm not sure why. Maybe we shouldn't Google that. But it's not, uh, it's not his uh, full name. His name is Jesus, uh, and they didn't have surnames then, but his fuller name would have been Jesus of Nazareth or uh, Jesus, son of Joseph. Uh, but Christ is Christ is the title. So it's like uh, J the preacher or preacher J uh, is how Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah works. So the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, quoting Isaiah, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So here's the birth of God with us. His name is Jesus. Now, every now and again, you'll find some wag who says, well, actually, his name wasn't Jesus. His name was this or that. Okay, we know that. And I heard one guy recently say, if you went to first century Palestine and you said, where is Jesus? Nobody would know who Jesus was. Okay, that's true. They wouldn't understand that. They also wouldn't understand the word where. Right? And they wouldn't understand the word is. They, they wouldn't understand any of that because you're speaking English and they spoke Aramaic. The, the progression of the name from uh, Hebrew, the uh, fullest uh, and original form of the name, Yehoshua. Yehoshua contracted uh, quickly down to Yeshua. That was in Hebrew. In Aramaic, uh, uh, contracted down and spelled down a little bit even tighter to uh, Yeshua. And so instead of Yeshua, Yeshua. And then in Greek, who have you know a very different alphabet and different sounds of both vowels and uh, and consonants in Greek, Yosius uh, come to us from that in Latin, Jesus. Uh, come to that in early English, Jesus. Come to that in modern English, Jesus. And so the name has transformed uh, as any name that. Uh, well, it's, it was used daily, this name. Everybody knew what this name was for the last three millennia. It was used constantly in daily use for the last three millennia. But in those three millennia, if you go through five different languages and the great English vowel shift and several updates of spelling through several languages, you end up with a different form of the same name. But everybody in unbroken chain says, this is the name, uh, that, uh, and this is how we say this name in our language. And so some people want to go back and say Joshua is a better way to render that. Well, Joshua went through the same type of process. And Joshua is another version of the same name as has come to us in English. But nothing wrong, obviously, with us uh, using this modern form of Jesus. Well, of this one, Jesus, we find that he is, as Matthew said, he is Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. In uh, Luke we have that wonderful prophecy of an old man named Simeon. The old man who met the baby Jesus and his parents as they came to the temple to offer the sacrifices done for the firstborn. And so in Luke 2 and 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And that man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And that really helps us with our next topic, which is of Christ. But he is Jesus. He's the Lord's Christ. He came to the spirit, in the spirit into the temple when his, the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, 
that you prepared in the presence of all the people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles for the glory of your people, Israel. And so in this passage, we see the Lord's Christ, and we see Jesus, and we see salvation. And so there are concepts all brought together at that point in development, a little baby, the one who was born of both a human mother and of God, God with us, God in flesh. This one, as we saw, uh, was uh, the Christ. Now, again, Christ is a uh, English ver uh, version of the word uh, in Greek uh, for the Hebrew word Messiah. So if we say Messiah or we say Christ, we're saying the same thing. Uh, one we get from the Hebrew, the other we get from the Greek. It means a special anointed one. And this special anointed one, uh, and this anointed one uh, would be used of kings or prophets or other people specially marked out by God. Well, this king, or this Messiah, would have a great number of roles to fill. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, this Christ is the one who is the seed of woman to crush Satan. Very odd construction, the seed of woman. In Hebrew, uh, if we read our Old Testament, we often see the word seed, right? There's a seed of Abraham, uh, there's a seed of Jesse, uh, there's uh, several seeds. But seed is always with the male line. Seed is always with the male, except in that one prophecy. Except in that one prophecy. It's sort of like if we ever said in English, the semen of woman. It just makes no sense. It, it, it's like, what? You're, you're certainly mistaken. But the first... The first time we have uh, sin and the, the cure for sin is the seed of woman. He's not the seed of man. He's the seed of woman. How did Jesus come? He came of woman. He, didn't, he came of woman and he came of God. He came in flesh, but he didn't come through man, but he was man. So uh, he would crush uh, the serpent on the head, crush Satan. In Genesis 12, it's the seed of Abraham who would bless all nations. In Genesis 49, uh, he's the, the lion and the scepter holder of the house of Judah. In Job 19, he's the living redeemer and whom Job hopes. In 2 Samuel 7, he's the root of Jesse, the son of David. In Psalm 2, he's God's only begotten son, the king and the Messiah. In Psalm 110, he's the rejected cornerstone and the priest after the order of Melchizedek. In Isaiah 53, Oh, 52 through 56. Uh, he is the suffering servant. In Zechariah 6, he's the uniter of the two offices of priest and ruler. And he is also uh, the object and subject of about 300 more prophecies and countless types and figures. Uh, I probably in that short list, although I hit some main ones, I probably left off your favorite prophecy. I made sure to get mine in there because I'm the one that made the list. But there's a lot of prophecies to choose from when it comes to Christ, who is Jesus, the Messiah. Peter summarized it in this way. In the first presentation of the gospel to Gentiles, this is what the apostle Peter said. Acts 10, beginning in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So there we have our 
our magic words for today's sermon. Know yourselves what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism of John, that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Well, that's a better summary of my sermon than I got, but that is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with Christ, the one who was anointed, who came and did the miracles. We're dealing with the one who God has made the ruler and the judge. That'll be the Lord part. The one by whom all the prophets testify that we can receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And so a number of these readings we've had have mentioned sin and salvation. We now come to one part of the great work of the Messiah. He has a lot of great works, but we really like that uh, salvation part. We really like that forgiveness of sin part. Uh, and, you know, you think about all the men of God who were ever sent. There were a lot of men of God, some of whom revealed great things, like Moses, Elijah, uh, David in the Psalms, uh, the prophets. Uh, many of them revealed great things. Many of them set the order of things for years to come. Uh, how, how much is in, it's important that Abraham set the order of things through his family and through his children or through, through Jacob, whose name is Israel. Uh, these are the, the forefathers of the people. Or David setting up the worship. Moses setting up the law. All of these notable men who set up notable things and revealed to us great swaths of things about God, but all of them sinners. All of them their sins we know all of them, their failures are evident. All of them, great servants of God and still in need of forgiveness. And yet there was one who came and set the great order of things to a much higher degree. And he did it perfectly, giving us an example that we may follow in all things in his steps. We think about all of the uh, people who served to us as examples in the scripture. And there's many encouraging examples but there's only one we can follow in everything and in all respects and without any reservation. There's only one who could bear the sins, not just for himself, because he had none to bear, but uh, he could bear the sins for others. Others could not bear their own sins. Uh, David, the great man after God's heart, his failures are legion and they are well known. Moses, the man who led the people to the very cusp of the promised land but was disqualified from entering by his own sin. And all and we go about all of them but for Christ in the sin that marred their lives. But in Christ, no sin of his, so he could take the sin both as man and as of God for others. So Isaiah 53, we could read this whole thing at great length, but we'll read just a bit. Isaiah 53, 5, 
But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned aside to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us to fall upon him. In verse 8 it says, he received the stroke or the penalty that was due. Not due to him, but due to us. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant, he will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he has poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for transgression. And so he was the sin bearer, came for that purpose. As in Luke 2, the angel sang to the shepherds in the field. They said, Luke 2.10, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so then when he made his first appearance before John the Baptist, the great forerunning prophet, John would declare loudly to all, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We know the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. He died for sin. He died being counted as a sinner. Uh, He died taking sin on himself, but he took it for us. The stroke due for us, the death due for us, was taken by him that he might save us from those sins. This is the propitiation of the wrath of God, rightly against sin, taken by Him on our behalf. And so years after His work, two of His closest companions would summarize this way, 1 John 3, 5, you know that He appeared in order to take away sin, and in Him there was no sin. And 1 Peter 2, 24, directly alluding to what we read in Isaiah, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you are healed. And so the conqueror of sin, the living redeemer that Job looked for, the Lord of lords, the Lord of glory, our Lord Christ. Okay, well, that gives us our last topic. He's the Lord. The one who can conquer all enemies, including sin. In him, the power of God was exercised in creation. The New Testament affirms it's all made through him, for him, by him. Colossians 1. Also read about his work in creation in Hebrews 1 and John 1. So the power of God exercised by him in creation and in governance before he came in the pre-incarnation. Exercised on earth in sinless perfection, in faithful obedience, in compassion, and in sacrifice while in the flesh exercised with the power over death in the resurrection and now exercised continually from heaven as he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, having done his work, exercised in providence and in guidance 
in justice and in judgment until the final victory, until the last enemy which is conquered, which is death, will be conquered and the kingdom delivered back to God. This was prophesied in Psalm 110 verse 1. What some have said is God's favorite Bible verse because it's quoted uh, twice in Matthew, twice in Luke, once in Acts, five times in Hebrews, and alluded to in Ephesians and Colossians. Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In the book of Hebrews, there's a great contrast made between the priest who stand ministering and Christ who did his work and sat down by God. One thing you'd know, if, if when I sit down, I'm done, right? And y'all know, I'm not done probably till I get down from here and go, go to sit. I'm not done. Uh, I, I'm still working as long as I'm standing. Christ is done and he's sitting. Those other priests, even after his sacrifice, they had to keep standing, right? They had to keep on going because it didn't deal fully with sin. In the Acts 2 version of Psalm 110, at the conclusion of the first gospel sermon, we have this, Acts 2.34, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so here is Jesus, our Lord, proclaimed from the first gospel sermon until the last gospel sermon and every faithful gospel sermon in between, we proclaim Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Savior, Jesus the Messiah, that man who came from Nazareth and lived there and worked there uh, with his family at the carpentry shop until he began his public ministry. That man is the Messiah of God, our Savior. He's the Lord. One last passage, not where you probably expect, but Romans 14. Romans 14, the great passage on getting along, but that's not why we're going there this morning, but, but still get along, still, please. No, but in Romans 14, it, it talks about the effect of Christ's lordship and our salvation. It, it talks about the effect of that on every aspect of life. And sometimes because Romans 14 is such a controversial chapter about how much, how, how far do we go in getting along over what things can we get along, etc., we only view Romans 14 through that lens, but this is a lesson in Romans 14 on the practical effect of having Christ be our Savior and as we're in community with other people, our common Savior. Romans 14, 6. It says, there is much more that could be said about Jesus as Lord, but uh, we'll end this, the fact He is Lord, Lord of all. All right, so... Uh, beginning there, uh, verse 7. For no one lives for himself and no one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. Because he's the Lord, right? That we, we belong to him, all of us. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the living and the dead. So you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. 
For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall praise God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So that's how thoroughgoing Jesus' lordship is. We all live for him. We all live in him. If we die, we die in him. We are to die for him in our life. If the, even if that's not talking about our uh, martyrdom and our death. But if we live or die, it's all in the Lord. Because he's the Lord of the living and the dead. He has power over life and death. He's our Lord when we're alive. He's our Lord when we die. Well, we might talk about and have some speculation about how much he's our Lord before we're born. But I think we can make some establishment of scripture that he's the Lord then too, because he's always the Lord. He's the Lord over all. He's the Lord of all. And because he is the Lord, each of us will give an account to him of ourselves as he is, he is God. So here is Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He is the Lord. And that is the most basic and fundamental thing I can think of possible in Christianity. We've got to get that foundation laid. And on that cornerstone, we can lay the rest of it. Now, I'm not sure how successful I did in getting all that done within the hour as Paul did, but we came pretty close. And so, let us think on, meditate on, give praise and adoration to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, as we begin this year in Him and continue for however much He graces us with of life. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.